0: I have been accused this morning of dressing like a southern lawyer. Please excuse my clothing. The very kind lady who came up to me later said I need a Panama hat. I don't know how to take that. But if you can endure looking at me, I'd like to talk to you about uh, Paul for a minute. And I'd like to start out by talking about something I love, and that's bread. Um, I love to eat it. I love to cook it. I even enjoy listening to it some, though it gets kind of old after a little bit. David Gates' voice kind of. But if I I made some bread this week. I made a, a whole wheat bread. And I'd gotten the recipe from a guy literally who had won the International Bread Baking Competition. And this bread was really good. It was very simple in the ingredients. We took some wheat flour, actually wheat and white, but 75% of the flour was wheat, added some yeast, added a little bit of water, added some salt, and a little honey to make it sweet and last longer. Now, that's it. Ignore the plus sign, okay? That's all we added. And the bread was fantastic. It came out, it was crusty, it was chewy, it was, uh, it smelled just, ah. Oh. And when it was hot and you spread something on it, it just brought you to your knees and you said hallelujah. <laughs> now, I don't just love bread. I happen to be a fan of chili. Y'all eat Chili. You ever eat wolf brand chili? (laughs) Wolf brand chili is really good. And if you're health conscious, they have this 99% fat-free turkey chili that you think is, oh, no, it's pretty good. It's got all those wolf brand spices. So question, since I love to make bread and I've got this marvelous bread recipe and since I really like wolf brand chili, do you think it might really be tasty if the next time I make bread I add a can of wolf brand chili to it? no that's not going to make the world championship whole wheat bread it might make something goofy but it's not what we would call bread because with bread you've got a recipe and you follow the recipe and you don't i mean if you want to add things that's fine but don't fool yourself into thinking you're making the original product you're making something different okay makes sense The reason I use this illustration, and it's not a great one, but it's the closest I could come up with this week. The reason I use this illustration is because the Galatian church had a problem. The Galatian church problem was one where they took the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And when I use the word gospel, what I'm talking about is, well, well, I don't have a pen. Can I have a pen and a piece of paper? Okay, here are the tickets. They're still down there, but I'm using the envelope. When I use the word gospel, I use it in the, the Greek sense of Paul's. The Greek gospel is eu, E-U. You got EU? Does anybody know what EU means in the Greek? Good. Like uh, tomorrow, I have to deliver a eu-logi, a good words, a eulogy, um, for our high school debate, debate coach. Um, you means good okay now uh, euthanasia thanatos is the greek word for death Euthanatos, euthanasia is a ideally a, a good death though it seems wrong to me um you, okay and then the next word in the greek is angelos and it's a greek a Two G's in the Greek, and two G's in English, we do an NG, because that's what it sounds like. And then E-L-O-S, angels, yes, that's what we get from it, that's just an ending. So, good, and what is an angel? A messenger. So, an angelos is a message, or news. So, gospel in the Greek means good news you with me now the good news to paul we read the gospels there's the gospel of matthew mark luke and john right and we think of gospels as the books that talk about the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of christ and the gospels have that account but the really good news is not in paul's mind that jesus was born Well, that's fine, and and it's important, but it's not the ultimate good news. Jesus could have been born and chosen not to die for us. And the news would not have been all that great. For Paul, the life of Christ, holy and pure, is important, and it's good, but it's not the ultimate good news. Christ could have lived perfectly And chosen not to die on our accord. And the news would not be that great for us. For we would still be lost in sin. When Paul uses the word gospel. The good news for Paul is very pointed and direct. The good news for Paul is that Jesus Christ died. Was buried. And was resurrected. For us. That's the good news. Very simple. Paul even says it that way to the Corinthians in a letter. In 1 Corinthians 15 he says, Brethren, I would remind you of the terms, the words, the way I preach to you the gospel. Jesus Christ was died according to scripture, buried on the third day, resurrected. And we know it because he's appeared to all these people, last of all to me that's the gospel. You with me? We got to have Paul's word down to understand this class well today. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So, here's the Galatian problem. They got the gospel that Jesus Christ died and was buried and resurrected for their sins. They received it from Paul. Paul taught it to them. Then Paul left and they started adding chili to it. They decided the gospel plus must really be good. If the gospel is good news, can you imagine how wonderful it would be with chili on top? That's the problem. And that's the problem Paul wanted to nip in the bud. And that's the problem that was so important it caused Paul to write the very first letter that we have of Paul's, the letter we call Galatians. That's what we're going to study today, and we're going to do Galatians, which is a Um, a a book that we could very easily camp in for six months. We're going to do it in 30 minutes. So fasten your seatbelt, put up your tray tables, because we are about to take off. Paul writes Galatians, it's a letter, it's the first letter we've had a chance to study in this class, though of course if you've been with us we've studied letters before. But in the Paul series this is our first letter and so a little bit of review here. How do we go about studying a letter? We've got a New Testament letter. We want to figure out how to study it. What do we do? Well, the first thing that as good Christian students and scholars and children of God, the first thing we want to do is we want to put that letter into context. We never, ever want to be guilty of taking what God has said out of context. Have you ever had a fuss or a fight with your spouse or someone you like? A few of you have. I can tell. Lewis has probably refereed many fusses and fights, probably for half of the class in here at some time or another when he's doing his counseling role. One of the things that most frustrates people who are having a discussion is when the person they're discussing it with takes what they said out of context. and that just irritate you? That's not the way I meant it. That's not what I... You know, I, I if I said that, I didn't mean it that way. You know, please put it into context. It's just not fair. We don't want to do that with the words of our Lord. We want to study the context. So what does that mean to put this letter into context? It means more than merely taking a verse and opening up both sides of the verse. It means as a letter itself, we want to ask some basic questions. We want to know when the letter was written. To the extent we can determine that, we want to know who it was written to. We want to know why, in this case Paul, wrote the letter. What was his reasons? These are things that help us put the letter into context. And then once we've got all of that, we can say, what did he actually say? And, and try and capture that within the flow of the letter at large. That's what our goal is today. That's what we try and do. And that's when we're safe to apply that scripture to us. You run into danger if you apply scripture to you without doing the other stuff first. You can't just go... To certain scriptures and pull them out and just start applying them without understanding the context that they're in because our context is different today it is and if we want to understand the spirit of god and the thrust of the message we may miss things if we simply take them for face value out of context so let's do that let's look at this and let's do it uh, uh, in our review of paul first when when did paul write this letter well if I wrote you a letter, it'd be pretty easy because i stick the date on them. You could look at the date. At Paul's time, they dated things. In Roman civilization, things were dated. A-U-C, from the time that uh, 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 Rome was established, supposedly. But Paul and most people never dated their letters. Oh, they would also date things in various... Uh, um, times of Roman emperors. You'll see Luke talk about in the year of Tiberius Caesar or whatever it might be. And, and so there were dates like that. Paul doesn't give us dates for Galatians, so we don't know precisely and scholars differ on it. But here's what I would suggest the evidence indicates to us. And I've given you some resources to go back and look and make your own determination if you'd like. If Jesus was, in fact, crucified around 30 A.D., which is the best estimate for scholars, then Paul's conversion takes place in 33 A.D., okay? After Paul's converted, a couple of years later, he makes that first visit to Jerusalem. These are all matters we've already covered in this class. We've covered in this class the time between 35 and 46 that Paul spent in Cilicia in Syria. We've talked in this class about Paul in 46... Taking the bread of life. And. Um, that's a bad pun. Going and, and taking the gospel. To the Galatian churches. Paul went out. And he taught him the gospel. In 46 AD. Paul went on this mission trip. In and forty six 47 and 48. And this is the time. He set the gospel out. In front of the Galatians. Now. Last week we finished his mission trip and talked about the conference in Jerusalem, that's in Acts 15, where the question was: Do the Jew, do the Gentiles need to abstain from meat, sacrifice to animals? Do the Gentiles need to abstain from blood, sexual immorality? And there's a big debate about it. And should they be circumcised or not be circumcised? And the decision is made that. Circumcision should not be bound upon the Gentiles. The law of Moses should not be bound upon the Gentiles. All that the apostles and elders in the Jerusalem church decide to do is send a letter which for fellowship's sake instructs the churches to abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and strangled in blood. Okay? That was last week. Now, when does Paul write Galatians? I think Paul writes Galatians before that Acts conference. I believe if Paul wrote Galatians after the Acts conference, he would have referenced the letter that the apostles and the elders had him take back on the very issues of whether or not circumcision was necessary. Paul would not be obligated to write an extensive defense of his own position if he had the backing of all of the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So I think Paul wrote and addressed the problem to the Galatian churches before this conference we covered last week in Acts 15. That's the when. Now, who? Who did Paul write to? Scholars can readily identify Galatia. Galatia is that area that I've circled on the map in the PowerPoint with the red. Galatia soon became what scholars now call Northern Galatia and Southern Galatia. Paul had done his missionary work in southern Galatia. I believe the letter was written to those churches. The problem comes on this issue if you read books on it, and I got an email from someone saying, I have a commentary, and they said it was written to the northern churches. Well, that was the in vogue view for a long time because the churches in south Galatia soon dropped out of Galatia, or that whole region of South Galatia, soon left. And within a hundred years of Paul writing, all Galatia was, was the northern part. And so you have for over a thousand years, people saying, oh, the Galatians, that must be the northern part, because that's the only part that is Galatia. It wasn't understood, really, until Sir William Ramsey's archaeological work in the late 18 and early 1900s, that the southern region was called Galatia. Until about a hundred years after Paul. And once that key has opened up. All of a sudden a lot of scholars are sitting there saying. Uh, gee we'd been saying Acts was not accurate. And Paul's letters were not accurate. Because we didn't think archaeology bore him out. Turns out our archaeology wasn't accurate. And the Bible was. Which is kind of understandable. So. God wasn't doing their archaeology, but God was doing the Bible, so he tends to be more accurate. Um, Galatia includes these churches that Paul's established on his first missionary journey. It seems to me pretty logical to say that's who he wrote it to. Next question, why did he write it? Why? Scholars call this the occasion for the letter. And we don't know. Paul doesn't say... The reason I am writing this is dot, 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 but like listening to one end of a phone conversation. Yeah, I, I got out of the shower this morning. I heard Becky on the phone and she was, oh, pork chops are easy to cook. All you got to do is like, do the skillet put some this, uh, salt, and and you flip them over, but you got to make sure it gets done, and the temperature for pork is 160-something, whatever she said, Uh, but if you don't have a thermometer, if you cut it open, it shouldn't be pink. You don't want to eat raw pork. You get trichinosis, and you die. So um, uh, I hear this end of of the phone conversation with Becky, and I'm thinking, she's got to be talking to Will, our son, because... Our daughters aren't in a place where they cook, and Will is. And I know Will frequently calls her for cooking questions. And I know it's someone that causes a delight in her voice to talk to. And I heard her say, your dad and I had house guests last night. And so I know it's someone who calls me dad. (laughs) That narrows it down to, you know, five. So it's got to be Will. And I figure he was calling, asking her, how do I cook pork chops? Because she's telling him. And that's not general conversation just for boredom. You know, we might say, how's the weather in Oxford? But we don't say, hey, let me tell you how to cook pork chops. (laughs) You can tell something about the conversation and what's going on at the other end simply by hearing your end of the phone call, right? All right, we can do that with Paul and the letter. We can take the letter of Galatians and by reading it, we can figure out uh, exactly who it is, not only that he's talking to, but why he's talking to him. So let's look at a couple of passages in the Galatian letter and let's figure out why we think Paul was writing to them. What was, as scholars call it, the occasion for the letter? Here are some passages that stand out to me as being ones that tell us a little bit about what might have been going on. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Sort of tells us a little of why he's writing. They're turning to a different gospel. He wants to stop that. Or how about seven? There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. I'd say Paul must be writing because there are people who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And he wants to fix that. Or we could look at Galatians 3.1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that I gave you the gospel. Or, what does gospel mean to Paul? It was before your eyes. Jesus was publicly portrayed. I told it to you in public. It was right out in the open. This wasn't a secret gospel. Publicly portrayed as crucified. So someone's bewitched them. They've fallen prey to some bad doctrine. Some false gospel. They're turning to a different gospel. A distorted gospel. Galatians three three. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See? So he, he's, he's writing because they're so foolish. <laughs> they they started they started with the Spirit, but now they're trying to finish with the flesh. Or how about this? Galatians 4 9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back? They're leaving the doctrines and the key core message that Paul had delivered to them about Jesus Christ crucified. And Paul says something's got to be done. Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What is, what, this is what Paul's gotta write for. This is the occasion. So, we know who he's writing to. He's writing to churches that he's established. We know when he's writing it. He's writing it within a year or so. So these are young churches. These are people... This isn't a church with 20 years of experience under their belt. These are churches where Paul went through. He preached the gospel message. He wasn't there for a long, long time. The Spirit comes in and, and moves in the hearts of the people. And those that God had appointed come to eternal life. And Paul's preached that message... Paul goes back through the churches to edify, to put in elders. But it's all not real. It's not a long time. Paul's getting chased out of these towns and getting stoned and, and persecuted. So he doesn't have a lot of time with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they come all the way back home. And Paul hears that some people have come in and started distorting the gospel. And these are young baby Christians who need to be reinforced on this. And so that's what Paul does. He writes them this letter. Does that make sense? You see how we can put the letter into context now? And now it allows us to say, what did he say? And when we look at a letter like this and we say, what did he say? We want to follow it like you brought might the flow of a river. You want to, you, you don't want to just read a letter. And, and, and I, I urge you, if you're studying the Bible and you're going to study a letter, if you're in BSF. And y'all are, I don't think BSF's studying a letter right now. But, but whatever Bible study program you might be in, or just some self-study, when you read, sometimes say, I'm going to commit myself to a study in this book. And when you read a letter, first sit down and read it all in one swoop. Just read it. One one to the end. And, and make some notes. Just try to follow the flow of thought. Then you can go back and start digesting bites of it. Okay? But first, catch that big flow. So we're going to catch the flow of Galatians. We're not really delving in and, and eating uh, in great depth. Okay, We're looking at the whole loaf. We're not slicing it today to keep this horrible bread analogy growing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's still rising, isn't it? Um, someone said my class was half-baked. I said, oh, no. Um, yeah, okay. Um. So, with that, let's look at the flow of thought. Paul starts out almost flashing an ID card to the Galatians. His official ID card. Now, it doesn't have his picture. And he doesn't use his Hebrew name, Saul. He uses his Latin name, Paul. But uh, he sets out his occupation pretty clear. Apostle. And, of course, his religion is Christian. Because he came from Antioch at this point, And in Antioch, they were first called Christians. See? So it works. All right. Here's what Paul does. He comes in and look at the way he sets up his credentials. Paul begins this letter by saying, hey, not just some flim-flam little come-through-town guy. I'm Paul. And these are the first words. Paul. I'm an apostle. And I'm not from men. And I'm not through men. I'm through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You want a messenger? I didn't come to you because Lewis sent me. or I didn't come to you because Peter or John sent me. He says, I came to you because God, who raised Jesus from the dead, sent me to you. That's, pretty, that's a strong start, isn't it? Paul's starting out. He wants to lay the foundation here of who's speaking and what message is coming across. And he doesn't want there to be any doubt about it. And then he follows that up. He says, But it's not just me. It's not one man alone on an island. I'm writing with all the brothers who are with me. This is consensus. This is right. So you brand new little churches out there, you hear me as a man sent from God to talk to you. A message that all of the brothers agree with me on. He'll say later on in verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, what's the gospel? Yes, which to Paul is death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. I would have you know that Jesus dying, resurrected to eternal life for you. The gospel preached by me, it's not man's gospel. It's not from man, That's what he means. It's good news to man, but it's not from man. It's not man's gospel. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's my authority. That's where my message comes from. You want to hear my gospel? The gospel I delivered to you, you're getting it. From a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus not only sent me, God not only sent me, but God revealed it to me. I got it. Revelation from Jesus. He says, God set me apart before I was born so that I might preach the gospel to you. Before I was even born, God said, I'm going to give birth. I'm going to see that a man is born that is in the right place, in the right time. His name is going to be Paul. That man is going to be born for my purpose, God says, of taking the gospel to those Galatian churches. I mean, Paul's putting out some pretty strong authority, isn't he? I mean, honestly, if somebody comes to you and says, God sent me, and I can prove it. And I'm bringing you a message that's not mine. It's straight from God. And God made me for the whole purpose of bringing you this message. If someone says that and it's true and you believe it, would you listen to the message? I think it's pretty compelling. He doesn't leave it alone. He says, the gospel that I preach to you as you get into chapter 2, he says, I took it up to Jerusalem again to make sure I wasn't running in vain, he says. I said it before them, the apostles. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, you. James, Peter, and John perceived the grace that was given me, gave the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. I didn't just go out pell-mell. I went out with the right hand of fellowship from the apostles in Jerusalem to bring you the gospel. So I got the authority of God, Jesus, The words that God has revealed to me through Jesus, with the blessings of the church. And I come to you with it. And that's what I delivered to you. That's what I gave you. So with those being my credentials, let's address the problem you've got going on. And this is where Paul moves to the problem. And Paul says it. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be accursed. Anathema. In the Greek, Paul says it twice. He says, I'll say it again. Even if an angel from heaven preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be accursed. Paul lays it out there. Paul is not going to have the gospel mangled up with additions. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for us does not need any help, it's not insufficient. It's not inadequate. It's not almost enough to take care of you and me. You cannot add to it. It is finished. It is total. This is why he's got trouble. And the problem is, somehow, I mean, you would think, okay, well, you say that, it's idiot simple. Paul says, something's happened to you. He says, foolish Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Did, some, did Elizabeth Montgomery get there with her little nose and do that twinkle, twinkle, twinkle? Who's bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus was publicly, I told you the gospel. He says, I got a question for you. I got an exam for you. That's a one question test. You know when you go to law school? In each course, you get one test at the end of the course that's your entire grade that's pretty bad or good i mean you only have to show for one day but boy if you don't show on that day it's a long walk back to explain why you don't graduate um that's it can you imagine the test being just one question i got one question paul says i only have one question how many of you have our teachers are working a school Okay, a number. Any students? People going to school? Any of you ever been a student? Ever gone to school in your life? Okay, good. Anybody ever take a driving test? All right. You've taken a test? Right? All right. Paul gives a multiple guess question or multiple choice, I'm sorry. Multiple choice question. Here it is. He says, Here's your question, and you only have one. One question. Did you receive the Spirit? The Holy Spirit? Did you get your salvation? Did you receive it by, A, works of law? Did you work to get it? Or, B, hearing with faith? That's the question. He says, it's the only question I got. Okay, so what's your answer? And don't answer, C, all of the above. He has not made that an option. You can't say, well, it's both. Oh, no. You got to choose between A and B. Paul makes it clear it's B, and he's, that's when he says he says, "So if you started that way, if that's how you receive the Spirit, what makes you think that you don't end that way? What makes you think you start adding to it?" And here's the Galatian problem. Here's what they were doing. There are Jews, and there are. Jews that follow the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. And it is true, through Judaism comes Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate crown on the top of the Jewish faith. The, 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 the reason for the Jewish faith. The answer for the Jewish faith. Jesus is the what the prophets point to, what the law points to. Jesus is the ultimate crown for Judaism right now there are Gentiles out there and Paul's preaching to the Gentiles in fact has turned to the Gentiles because a lot of genetic Jews have kicked him out of the synagogue and what Paul teaches is the gospel Paul says that the Gentiles through Jesus get to come to God does that make sense Gentiles, you come to God through Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Now, most of us in this room, not all, but most of us are Gentiles. We've got a few Jewish folks in here. But most of us are Gentiles. So I'm here to tell you, Gentile to Gentile. We go to God through Jesus Christ. The confusion was coming in because there were a lot of Jewish Christians who misunderstood. And they were teaching a corruption. They said, actually, Gentiles, what you get to do is come through Jesus to be a Jew. And for them, the goal was being Jewish, not being with Jesus and God. It's okay, Gentiles. Now that you've become a Christian, now that you're born again, you can be a good Jew. Be circumcised, follow all of the dietary laws, do all of the things the Jews required to do. This is your door into the Jewish faith. And if Paul would have preached that, I'm not sure he'd have ever been kicked out of the synagogues. But that was a corruption that Paul would not do. And Paul makes the argument this way. He says, guys, 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 think about a contract. A deal's a deal, a deal. You ink a deal. You decide you're going to buy a car. And you're going to do it, uh, 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 you you write it down or the dealer writes it down and you're going to pay, you know, $20,000 for this car. And you sign the contract that says you're going to pay it. And you pay it. And you get the car. And you drive the car for a few years. And then you go back and say, um, "I bought this car from you two years ago. I paid twenty thousand dollars. We had a contract." And they say, "Yes." You say, "Well, I'd like—I'd like a CD player installed, please." Well, are you willing to pay for it? No, no, no. I'd like to do it as part of the original deal. Car dealers gonna look at you like you're an idiot. Say, "Well, no, that's not part of the deal." Well, I know it wasn't part of the original deal, but I'd like to change the original deal now. In fact, I'd like you to go ahead and knock all, about $1,000 off the price. I've decided I overpaid two years ago. Paul well, says, you don't do that. When you do a contract and everybody executes it, a deal's a deal's a deal. You live by the terms, right? Everybody says yes in the Galatian church. And Paul says, okay, well, God promised righteousness to Abraham and his offspring. And the offspring's talking about Jesus, the righteousness through Christ. God promised righteousness through Christ, the offspring singular of Abraham, way back when Abraham was alive. Okay, get your calendars out. 430 years after Abraham, God gives the law to Moses. Moses. How can you think righteousness is coming through the law? God already made the deal. You can't go back and change the deal 430 years later and say, oh yeah, I know I've been promising that through Abraham and his offspring Jesus, but uh, I'm, I'm changing it now. I'm going to alter the deal. New deal. you got to keep the law. Paul says that's That's ridiculous. Paul says, now you might say, well then, why did God even give the law? Well, there are good reasons. He gave it to help society, so we'd quit treating each other like we do when we're lawless. But he also gave it to us to show us Jesus, so that we'd see the perfect one and understand him to be perfect when he came, because he followed the law like none other. And finally, he gave it to us to lead us to Jesus, so that the law as a tutor would teach us our manners, but also... Bring us to our knees and let us see who Jesus is, the need we have for a savior. So God had reasons to give the law, but it was never to redeem. Now, if you've been set free from the law, why are you going to go back? If you've got freedom in Jesus, if Jesus is your answer and he is your righteousness, why on earth are you going to try and get back into the law? He says, let me put it to you this way. There's a real irony at work here. Abraham has two kids. One of them's by a slave, Hagar. That child's name's Ishmael. And the Jews don't want to have anything to do with Ishmael. He was the bad. That was the slave. And then there's a child of promise through Sarah, the free woman. Those are Isaac and the Jews, right? Paul says, wrong. Paul says, here's the irony. Hagar, the slave, she represents the law in an allegorical sense. Because it's you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to the law. You've got to keep the whole law. So, so the Jews, the people who are trying to make you keep the law, are acting like Hagar's children. And the real spiritual Jews are the ones who are free in Christ. So don't let the Jews try and pretend... To bring the Gentiles into Judaism. The Jews need to leave the Judaism. If anything. And find the freedom in Christ. That's the truth. For freedom Christ has set us free. He says. Stand firm. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. And with that. Problem now. As we follow the flow of the problem. Paul says. Let's look at the answer. There's a great answer here. The answer is very simple. It's you take the righteousness of Christ and you don't add to it and then you live by the Spirit. Now the Spirit doesn't set you free just to go sinning. The sinning is stuff you did as an old man. You use your freedom to love, to walk by the Spirit. If you're the old pre-saved person, you're stuck in the works of the flesh. That's when you're stuck in the immorality, the impurity, the sensuality, the idolatry, the envy, the fits of anger. All of these things... But you've been set free, you've got the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to lead you, and it's going to grow inside of you. Fruit grows from the inside out. From the inside out, you're going to grow in fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These things are the life that you've got. That's what you need to be concerned with. Uh, This is not, oh, gee, I better go get circumcised now because I'm a Christian. I've got to start following Jewish dietary laws. Paul says, no, you've been set free from the law to follow the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to lead you into love and to joy and to peace and to patience. This is not, oh, gee, now I go sin. It's not about that at all. It's about the life that I can live freely now to Jesus. Does that make sense? That's the flow of what Paul wanted that church to know. That's how he wanted to answer the problem. So with that, here are your points for home. First, don't add to the gospel. And it's tricky how it happens. It's tricky how it happens. Oh, for some it's okay. I'll accept that I come to God through Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and, and I'm saved by my trust in Jesus and my faith in Jesus. That's fine. But now that I've got that salvation, I better do all of these things just right, or I might lose it and go to hell. That's Paul saying, "No, no, 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 no. You you, you got saved by your faith." You're not going to keep it by your works. Don't add to it. Now, some folks have trouble with the salvation itself. Oh, yes, we're saved by faith. What does that mean? I was told by one of my professors one time, faith means doing the following things to get saved. And he listed five. You do these five things and you get saved. But I said, that's not like, he says, no, 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 no. These are the works you do to have faith. And I just kept thinking of that multiple-choice question. He wanted it all of the above. So it's not rules. It's not Sabbath-keeping. It's not uh, 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 baptism. It's not, it's not anything that we need to be adding to the gospel. Jesus Christ died to pay the price of our sins. God's, not, God's in the redeeming business god's in the saving business he honestly is out to bring as many as he can home he's not trying to trick us and make us navigate a maze to find our way home he's made it so easy don't add chili use your freedom then to grow and to love don't live as a slave and finally if you're there and you're doing it please don't get a big head If we had time and I had not promised John Michael anonymity today, I would make him sing a song he has. May I never boast in anything, save the cross of the Lord. It's a beautiful song. Go download it on iTunes and put it in your brain. It comes from Galatians 6. And Paul says, when you're doing well, or in Keith Green's word, "And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown. For my reward is giving glory to you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray your blessings, your Holy Spirit would pour out on all of us who are in this class by physical presence, by internet presence, by um, uh, listening MP3 presence. I pray that your spirit will come down. And will convict us not only of our sin, but the righteousness we have in Jesus that you paid the ultimate price to give us. And the life that we have in our resurrected Lord, and the spiritual way that you have set out for us to grow and to change and become children of love and children of joy and children of peace. And it's my prayer that you will bless us with that and that we'll find it not in ourselves and our deeds. But in your provision through Jesus Christ, the direction of your Spirit, and the way you grow us. And Lord, that is our boast that we are, that any good that we are, we are because of you. Through Jesus we pray, Amen.